0: Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you once again for joining us online for our Honeyridge at Home services. And I'm so thankful that we are still able to interact, albeit in this way, uh, because of the new restrictions again. Cliff has already prayed for the preaching of the Word this morning, so let's make a start. In a recent video, Ray Comfort, an evangelist, was busy doing evangelism on a pier in California, and he opened his conversations with this question, Are you a good person? And the people's answers were quite interesting. Their answers went a little like, well, I'm not a bad person. I mean, I'm probably above average. Some said, I guess I would say that I'm pretty good, but no one's perfect. And others still answered more directly, I think I'm a pretty good person. As much as there wasn't an instant yes, this mumble-jumble roundabout answering scheme ended with almost every single case being a yes, I am pretty good Joel Osteen, a famous preacher of the prosperity gospel, agrees. Being interviewed by Oprah, he said the following, You know, I don't think that there are bad people. I believe that 99% of people are good people. They might make mistakes, but they have a really good heart. How about you? Do you believe you are a good person? How would you answer that question? Are you mostly good, with a few blemishes, Are you sometimes good and sometimes not? Can good even really be defined? Well, my desire this morning is that God would use his word to confront our hearts with the truth that Jesus shares with the young man in this passage, that no one is good except God alone. Now, I'm aware that even saying that is offensive in today's day. But regardless of how we feel, it's far more important for us for our hearts to be confronted by God's word than for us to be left in our own opinions. Uh, In contrast to the teaching recently through the parables, this event is a real story, not a made-up story from Jesus used to illustrate a point. This really happened. And our passage this morning is Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22. So while you're turning there, it might be helpful for us to recap where Jesus is in his life and ministry at this point. Here in Mark chapter 10, we find ourselves around the villages of Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, we see Jesus begin this journey, and this will be where Jesus will go to be arrested, will be crucified on the cross, and will rise again from the dead to go and be with the Father. Now, this event is clearly important to God because he had it recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are also details that the different gospel writers account for, which lend us some help when it comes to interpreting and studying this passage. In all three accounts we 're told that this young man, this man that Jesus' is, speak, is speaking to had great wealth. The ESV says that he was extremely rich in luke eighteen verse eight we 're told that this man was also a ruler, and during this time, there were no social classes amongst the Jews outside of the religious system. So for Mark to note that this man is oh, so for Luke to note that this man is a ruler it would mean that he would most likely have been a ruler, the highest authority or the highest lay leader in one of the local synagogues. In Matthew 19, verse 22, we also see that he was a young man. The combination of these three details is where most of our translators insert the title in our Bibles for this section, the rich young ruler. This, really, sorry, this man really was the cream of the crop, an extremely wealthy, shrewd businessman And the NASB records in verse 22 that he owned much property. Not only was he materially successful, but religiously he too was the best of the best. For a young man to be in leadership within the synagogue at this age would have been extremely rare because those positions were kept for elderly men. Now Jesus isn't speaking to just another person. This guy is the real deal. Young, affluent, successful, wise, a moral example, brilliant. This is the kind of man that every parent wants to have raised and everyone wants to know. So let's read our passage. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning. And I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open throughout the sermon as we spend our time studying God's word. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? "'Why do you call me good?' Jesus asked him, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So, as we begin, then, verse 17 is a perplexing start to the story. It's full of both all the right and all the wrong things. And I want us to focus on the right things that this young man did first. We see that he ran up to Jesus and he knelt before him and he asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we are reminded that as far as people go, this man had everything. Yet, in all that he had, he realized what he did not have. He did not have confidence about what his eternal standing was with God. All his property, the money, the good job, the religious influence, his friend group, his status in society. None of that gave him peace and confidence about his relationship with God. Now, can I speak as the youth pastor to the parents this morning for a moment? Please, I beg you, make observations about, uh, from this passage as we go through. Look at the incredible success that this man enjoyed within the world, yet the absolute misery that overwhelmed him outside of a relationship with Christ. And we will revisit that towards the end. Another positive aspect of this, that, of this man is that he chose the right person. Jesus said he is the bread of life. Not only does he choose wisely, but he even approaches with what seems to be a humble heart. Look at what Mark records, that he came running and he knelt down before Jesus. In the Near Eastern culture of this time, wealthy people, let alone rulers, did not run or kneel. Whatever they wanted would be brought to them. So when we see him running to Jesus, this tells us this man had a sense of urgency, which has captured his heart. His posture before Jesus is one of humility. And he refers to Jesus as good teacher. He really seems to be a respectful young man. We, see, we then see this man ask the question that would get all the evangelists in the room excited. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Talk about low-hanging fruit, right? I'm sure most of us would expect Jesus to simply answer with believe in me or maybe even quote John 3.16 to him. Well, let me ask you, what would your answer be to someone that asked you that question? Imagine someone coming across your way tomorrow. Maybe it's while buying shoes at Clearwater or at the taxi rank or at the, at the office. Or perhaps it's during the family catch-up WhatsApp call because of lockdown. See, this person comes to you and they ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is surely the kind of conversation that Christians dream of. No fuss, no awkward conversation, straight to the point. What would you say? I think many people would ask him to confess Jesus as Lord, maybe even pray the sinner's prayer, or ask Jesus into his heart. That's what evangelism has been boiled down to in much of modern-day Christianity. But by this standard, Jesus fails miserably in this encounter. So let's look at how Jesus handled this man's question. In verse 18, we see a strange reply from Jesus. He says, Why do you call me good? Now, to our eyes, it would seem that Jesus has missed the point of this man's question. He asked how he can inherit eternal life, and Jesus answers with another question. Unlike Joel Osteen, who says that most people are mostly good, or Bill Johnson, the senior pastor of Bethel Church, who says that people don't need to be told that they're sinners, Jesus takes the direct route, the most loving route, and he begins the process of unraveling this man's high view of himself We must see this. We must focus on this. Before we can ever present the good news of the gospel, we must present the bad news. So, from verse 18 to verse 19, we will see God's standard of goodness. Jesus continues and says, No one is good except God alone. And this is as much of a radical statement 2,000 years ago as it is today. No one is good. Paul writes the same in Romans 3, verse 10 and 11, where he says that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have become worthless. And catch this, there is no one who does what is good, not even one. How can this be? Surely when non-Christians do things like building hospitals, caring for the sick and the orphans, growing food, surely those are good things. Well, according to Jesus and Paul, yes, those are good things. But when those people who do not know God do them, their actions, the good things, are stained with the sinfulness of our hearts. John Piper illustrates it like this. Imagine a young man wants to take his girlfriend out on a date. And so he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, please can I borrow your car? The dad, being a loving father, says, Yes, of course. But first, I want you to just wash the car for me so it looks nice. The son walks away in a puff, moaning under his breath about how inconsiderate his dad is. He's interested in the date, not doing his dad's chores. And a few minutes later, what does the dad see as he looks out the window? Well, the son reversing the car into the driveway, splashing the car with soap, throwing a bucket of water over it, and storming inside. The young man comes to the father and he says, Dad, I've done what you've wanted. And he takes the keys and he goes. So in the strictest sense, the son did do what the father had asked. But the true state of his heart was exposed by his words and actions. He hated the father's request. You can hear the grumbling and the complaining and the moaning. See, this is the same way that those who do not know God do good things. Yes, in the strictest sense, there are good things being done. Praise God that his common grace is even strong enough and is full of his power and authority that even an unbelieving will... An unbelieving and broken world does what God wants. But God's standards go further than mere obedience to the letter of the law. God looks deep into the heart. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 21, You have heard it said, so here is the standard, do not murder. But I tell you, whoever is angry at his brother is liable to judgment. Jesus goes to the heart. In Matthew 5 verse 27, you have heard it said, here's the standard, do not commit adultery or sleep with someone that is not your spouse. But I tell you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. See, Jesus speaks and he shows that even when a law is kept to the T, when they are done with the wrong heart and not to honor God, they might as well have not been done at all. This is the problem that every single person faces. We are all by inheritance through the first man, Adam, sinners. We know that through Adam, sin came into the world and the devastating effects are on us today. But then for ourselves, we also choose sin, showing that not only is sin inherited, but sin is also individual. Our hearts love ourselves. We choose our desires over God every time, and we live lives that are far from God's standards. This is why Jesus can say with confidence that there is no one good except God. We move on then to see the response of this young man in verse 20. Jesus has just laid the case for the sinfulness of every person, that no one is good except God alone. And what does this man say? Me too. Look at his response. Teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. Now, this has got to be the height of arrogance Jesus has said to this man, only God is good because only God has kept the moral standards perfectly and that the best this man can come up with is, me too. Friends, this man's statement reveals something important, both about his heart and about ours when we echo this. He has an incredibly low view of God's holiness. Yes, Jesus is a good teacher, but he is also good. His friends at the synagogue would be good. The food for dinner would be good. His investments and his wealth were good. In essence, good is whatever he decides it is. And this is the same standard which many of us apply to our lives today. We ignore the clear commands of God. We ignore his holy standard. We ignore the word of God. And we come up with our own list of what is good. In essence, this man's response is, Jesus, I am good. What else must I do? Now, this man looks at his life and he sees that he has kept God's law, obviously by his own standards, and assumes that in keeping the law, he has done enough. Paul talks about a similar similar argument that he made before he was saved. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, he says, I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. Basically saying, I know what I'm talking about. If anyone else thinks he has ground for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, a Pharisee, blameless, get this, blameless according to the strict legal words. But look at his response when he understands that the standard of God was not simply to follow the strict legal words, but it was for the heart to be perfect. When Paul sees that his heart is sinful and broken, desiring evil, he says in Philippians 3, verse 7, but everything I counted as gain I have considered as loss for the sake of Christ. Again, in Galatians 3, verse 21 to 22, Paul explains that the law was never given to be the way to get to God. This young man is holding on to his good actions, saying, I am good, what else is there? Paul writes, for if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the, on the basis of the law. If God intended for us to keep the law in order to get to heaven, to be in relationship with him, to inherit eternal life, if we could do that, then righteousness would be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Friends, do you see that? When this man says, I have done all these things, he firstly lies because we read in Romans 3.23 that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And secondly, he shows that he is trusting in the law to give only what Christ can. This is why he asked in the beginning, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Little does he know that just before this, Jesus, when teaching children, speaks to the disciples about the kingdom of God, eternal life. And he says that the kingdom of God has to be received, not inherited. This is not something that we do. And his question should not have been, what must I do? It should have been, good teacher, what can be done for me so that a sinner like me can enter and receive eternal life? Sadly, there are many people today, no doubt some in our own church, who would hold to a similar claim as this man whether it's their moral code giving them confidence that they're saved, or perhaps the material blessings from God convincing them that God must love them and God must approve of them because he gave them all these things. Many are deceived into thinking that they're mostly good people. See, whatever it is, when we minimize the absolute holiness of God and maximize our own self-righteousness, we are blinded by our own sin. And this man's arrogance and self-righteousness has blinded him to three spiritual truths. Firstly, he was blind to his own sinfulness. Look at Jesus' response in verse 21. You say you're good. You say you've kept all these things. You lack one thing. Jesus has moved from exposing the faulty definition of good that this man held to, to pointing him back to God's law for the standard that he would need to keep in order to be good, And then here he exposes the inability for anyone to keep it. But this man is still blind to his sinfulness. Jesus stops his corrections and answers the original question. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, Jesus is not saying that to be a Christian, you need to have no possessions or you must engage in social justice. No, rather, Jesus shines a bright light on the sinfulness of this man's heart. And he shows that, in fact, he is not good. He is a lawbreaker. Now, we might be tempted to think like this man after hearing that, you lack one thing, that maybe there's just one or two small areas we need to work on. Maybe it's just something small that we need to get in line and then we'll be good. But look at what Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law, if our hearts say to us, follow one more thing, try a little harder, do your very best here, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, Because as it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. James echoes this thought in James 2 verse 10 where he says, For everyone who keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So when Jesus says you lack one thing, in reality, he is showing that it's much more than one thing. But even if it was just one thing, he would lack everything. The way we should view ourselves is that we have permanently stained hands before we are saved by Christ. Everything we touch is stained. Nothing can be good because we are not good. With our blemished hands, with our sinful hearts, everything we interact with in our life becomes stained by sin. This man's self-righteousness has blinded him to his own sinfulness, which in turn had awful consequences. In the same way as a sick person will never seek the right help until their symptoms show, the spiritually sick too will never seek the right help until their symptoms are made clear and exposed. This is why during evangelism we go to the law of God. We show people that they are sinners, not just people who God has promised their best life now. It is not about selling a type of gospel to people that is more acceptable. It is about presenting Christ and him crucified for sinners Now, because he did not see his great need, this man was blind to God's love and his call to repentance. This is our second point. So look with me at the start start and the ending of verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. And at the end of verse 21, he calls him and he says, Then come and follow me. Jesus, full of compassion and love, looks at this man in his sinful state. A man blinded by his own sinfulness. He doesn't even see his sin problem. And Jesus loves him. Isn't God's love incredible, friends? Jesus looked at him and loved him. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to read and reread these words. Jesus looks at a sinner, this broken man who believes that everything is fine. He believes he is a good person, even equivalent to God This young man is straight on his way to hell, following his desires, and Jesus loves him. Can you imagine anything like this? Is there anyone you know who is even able to love you perfectly at some of your low points? Your sinfulness cannot even begin to be compared to the lowest of your low, and yet look at what Jesus does. He sees you in the depths of your sin, and he loves you. But unlike what society calls love today, the kind of love with which Jesus looks at this man is not a kind of love which excuses his sin. You know, shame. He's just struggling a bit. His sin has really set him back. It's confused him. You know, I, I'll, make, uh, I'll make some uh, amendments here. I will just let him off the hook. No, Jesus, the most loving person who ever lived, did not affirm him in his sin. Instead, he called the man to repent of his sinfulness, to run away from his reliance on himself, and to come and follow him. This is the call of Jesus for all who would hear his word. Because Jesus loves you, he will never affirm you in your sin. Because he loves you, he will call you to repent of your sin and follow him. And this is the very message that Mark records Jesus beginning his earthly ministry with in Mark 1, verse 15. Where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Eternal life literally stands in front of you. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. We see here the incredible love and grace of Jesus giving him his answer to his question. You want eternal life? Flee from your sin and follow me. So how does this man respond? Well, thirdly, we see that he was blinded to his enslavement of his sin. Look at verse 22. This man had just been given the answer to his question. He asked Jesus for a list of to-dos and Jesus gave him a single, it will be done. And what is his response? He went away dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. The NASB says that he owned much property. Look at the strength of sin and idolatry. Does what Jesus did here make sense now? When this man said that he had kept all the commands of God since his youth, not only was he lying, but clearly he had idols that were there from even before he can remember. Look at what his love for his wealth had done to him. Look at how his heart was torn away from hearing the good news of faith and repentance in Jesus because he loved himself. It is here we see the truth of his question. It was not what must I do. It was what must I do when it's convenient for me in the way I want it at the time that will suit me. Me, me, me. Friends, look at the destructive nature of sin. The problem with your sin is that the first person that it blinds is you. The more we follow after our passions, our own desires, our own identities, the further we go from God, the more blinded we are to seeing our sinfulness and the grace of God and the strength of our idols, we are broken down by our own sin. This is why Scripture does not leave space for what modern-day Christianity calls the carnal Christian, someone who is genuinely saved but lives completely like the world. If there is no repentance, there is no faith. And this is what Jesus makes clear here. The gospel is not clearly stated in this interaction. We see repentance clearly stated, but the gospel is in the shadows. But look at what James says. I will show you faith by my works. Unless God's grace changes our hearts, and thereafter our actions, our thoughts, our speech, and everything We have no reason to believe we're saved. It is not that we will be perfect because, no, we are not good. The whole point of the gospel is to point to Christ, not to see us made good this side of heaven in perfection so that we can hold on to ourselves and have confidence in ourselves. No, rather we are to see the Holy Spirit's work in us and have confidence in Christ. Parents, earlier I asked you to consider this man's interaction with Jesus. As someone who has served many of the children in this youth for the last 16 years, if I had to highlight one consistent area of difficulty that myself and other leaders have faced, it would be parents who would bend over backwards to ensure that their children grew up to be successful, well-adjusted, and thoughtful adults. They'll send them to extra classes, sports on every day of the week, including Sundays, and every bit of private tutoring required. But when it comes to their spiritual lives, the children are in charge. There is no time for youth or Bible study or or youth activities. The kids decide when or when not they attend. Teens decide if they come to church or not. Sundays are for sleeping in. See, please don't misunderstand me here. I know there are very real challenges and requirements in today's day. But God is going to hold you accountable for how you raised your children. And if you truly believe that they need to do five items of sports a week, but are then too tired to be able to study the Bible, to come to church or be a part of being taught and discipled here at the church, then you are raising a child just like this rich young ruler. They will have everything that this world can offer them. And Satan will be all too pleased to see another child raised in the church go far astray. They will get the marks. They will get good jobs. Their success will be impressive and their souls will rot. This is not only about parents, church family. Which idol is God exposing in your heart? What is your response going to be to his call out of love to abandon them and follow him? Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 14 that the road that leads to life is narrow. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says that in order to follow him, we have to deny ourselves, our desires, and take up our cross. That's not jewelry. That's literally knowing that we will bear the same death as Jesus, dying to this world in newness in life. We are such a blessed church. Is it possible that many have bought into the prosperity gospel and the old lie of being able to follow Jesus but in my way? Yes, I'm a Christian, but I want to hold on to the junk I watch online or the music I listen to. I want to keep my porn addiction. I want to continue an inappropriate relationship with my spouse. I want to keep my idol of money and success. I want to take drugs, get drunk, sleep around, dishonor my parents, live as a homosexual, gossip and slander. Friends, it does not matter what our sin is. Jesus looks at us this morning with love and says, flee from your sin and come and follow me. If you are a Christian, then God calls you to holiness. He has set you free from the power of sin and the consequence of sin to run the race, to walk the narrow road because of what Christ has done, not because you are good, but because Jesus is good. If you are not a Christian and you're watching the stream this morning, what is your response when you see that Scripture That in Scripture, God removes any opportunity for your self-righteousness and your confidence that one day you will stand before him and be able to say, I am good enough. How will you answer the perfect standard which God demands for you to be holy, perfect, like him? Your arguments will not hold weight in the courts of heaven. You cannot fool God with, I am pretty good. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you are like this rich young ruler, blind to your sin, blind to the gospel call, enslaved to your sin. There is no hope for you in yourself. The only right response to do is what this man did. Run to Jesus in haste. Run to him with confidence that he will give you an answer, but know that the answer has already been given. Upon seeing this interaction, with his, uh, upon seeing this interaction the disciples were perplexed. If this moral, successful, religious, clearly brilliant young man could not inherit eternal life by himself, then what hope is there for the rest of us? And Jesus answers in verse 27, With man, it is not difficult. It is not challenging. With man, it is impossible. But not with God, because all things are possible with God. Flee to Jesus this morning. Run from your idols and your sin. Repent, turn from them, trust in Jesus to save you and cast yourself fully on his grace. He is faithful to save all who would trust alone in him for their salvation, to be made right with God, to be good, not because they are good, but because they have the blood of Jesus covering them, the same Jesus who suffered and died in their place. I pray this morning that each of us would know God's grace in our lives that for those of us who are saved and born again by faith and repentance in Jesus Christ would know the call to flee from our sin. And for those who do not yet know Christ, I pray that you see the great love of Jesus here, but that you also see your absolute dire predicament. Friend, you are not good. There is nothing you can do, but Jesus is good. He is the good shepherd. He is able to save you. Turn to Him, trust in Him, repent of your sins, and follow after Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You so much for Your incredible love. Thank You for Your grace which seeks out and saves sinners just like us. Without Your work, we would have nothing. We stand empty-handed in front of You, Lord, and we ask, what must I do when You once again remind us what has been done? Thank you for the awesome truth that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, our Lord and our Savior, and that in him there is life and life abundant. Please help us to see Jesus. Help us to see the love on his face. Help us to know his compassion, to turn from our sin and to run to him. We thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would be merciful in applying it to our lives and helping us to walk each day in true repentance and faith, trusting only after you. We come to you and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.